Hi. Hi. Good to see you. Yes, good to see you too. Do you live in Hawaii? No. Or which state? Um, Delaware. Yeah. Wow. How did you find out? Um, did you? Oh, um, when the quarantine started, I mean, I was searching for somebody to work, I mean, to do yoga with, and I mm -hmm. found Nikki and her voice and her mannerisms. I agree. Just magical. I totally agree. <laughs> ah. And are you doing training with her? Well, I used to live in Oahu, uh, nearby. It's not, uh, yeah, like uh, five minutes away from her studio. Mm -hmm. So I used to go uh, take her classes. But now I moved to Florida, and I miss her class so much. So actually, this Zoom quarantine period is like a, a dream come true for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like your present. Yes, because um, I was having... There are so many great studios in Florida too, but I just loved Nikki's class so much and I missed it so much. And then I moved to Florida back in November and I was like, oh, I miss her studio, miss her studio. And then, you know, pandemic started. It, it's sad, but at the same time, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a great opportunity for me. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, I hear you. I'll never get to Hawaii, but um, yeah, you um, never know someday. <laughs> and the meditation class was wonderful. That oh, workshop, that? Uh -huh. I haven't done that yet. Uh, and she has one starting, I think, the twenty second. Yes. I signed I up so. for that. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Uh, is that her meditation? Yes. Yeah, I know. I've, I've enjoyed, I did her first 10 days. Oh, yeah, I think your name was there, too. Yes. Yeah, it was really nice. And her Reiki is just as nice, too. Oh, yeah, I took her Reiki class, too. That was amazing. Oh, okay. Well, today, isn't, who are they celebrating, the one who started the Reiki? Usui. Um, I forgot his first name. Yes. Okay. I'm, yes. like, newbie, so I... Don't pronounce I, names I, I right. I took her but... class in March, so I'm newbie too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was really nice. Did uh -huh. you think so, Teresa? I'm sorry, my yes. video kind of paused. Um, there. Hi. Hello. 
yeah, my, um, it was buffering. So I didn't hear what you guys said for the last few seconds. Oh. So you enjoyed the meditation? Oh yeah, I love it because I've been, I'm doing her yoga teacher training and part of it is to meditate regularly and it really does help to have it guided. Mm. Uh, yes, well, when you read this and see, you know, what was the one, 45 years? 45. Um, hours oh, a yeah, day yeah. that he yeah. meditated oh, and yeah. still it wasn't enough or it was a smidget? Yep. <laughs> so that's nice. Then you can connect the meditation with the class. Are you taking notes when you read? Yes, I am. <laughs> it's very interesting um, to hear her interpretation of the book. Mm -hmm. Because I've, I've read the book already, and I've, I haven't read into the book, you know. I've only just read it and took it for what it is, and, oh, it's a nice story, and yeah, I picked up a few lessons from it, but nothing is in-depth as she has brought so far. Exactly. Yeah, it's very interesting. And then it's nice to hear what other people has to say about it, too. Uh -huh. Yes. Well, I don't think it's a book. Unless you have a lot of background knowledge, like an instructor, that it would take you a couple times, me, it will take me a couple times before things start resonating. I like um, reading the footnotes too. Oh, yeah. It has lots of great information. I have a big magnifying glass for those. Oh yeah, there's a tiny, <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I read them too, it's like, okay. <laughs> and then, yeah. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. morning. How are you guys? Good. How are you? Good. I'm good. How did the reading go last week? It was I wonderful. Have, yeah, I have more yeah. lines. You guys are going to have to ch um, chip in for chapters. Um, let's see. Did we go to 15? We went to 15, right? Yes. 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 All right. I have to admit, I only made it through chapter 12, but I've read before, so mm -hmm. I might not be as um, good at chapters 13 through 15, but I have all my notes for it, so we should be fine, but I might ask you guys to just take, the, take it away when we get there. So chapter 11, this is one of my favorite chapters. Did you guys enjoy this one? The Penniless yes. Boys and Brindabon? Yes. Yeah, so many little gems in this chapter. Um, so in this chapter is when Ananta um, is telling Mukunda, like, you need to pay more attention to money. Like, that's more important than God and seeking out this enlightenment you're always seeking. And Mukunda's like, never, like, I seek wealth out of God. Like, I'm dependent on God and Ananta they're staying in Anantas because they're on their way to the, to Sri Yukteswar's um, ashram. And the next morning, Ananta 
he has a plot from Mukunda and Jatendra gets kind of stuck in the plot um, of being sent to Brindaban without a single, uh, well, without a return ticket to return back to um, Ananta's house, but also without even a single rupee um, to help him get back or get his return ticket. And I think it's funny how, um, you know, he says like, you can't beg, you can't ask for food, you can't reveal your predicament, you can't do anything, um, any of these things to get back. So, um, and then Mukunda immediately thinks about, he, he accepts the challenge without even a bit of doubt because he's remembering being healed from cholera. He remembers the kites that came to him on the roof. He remembers the amulet he had. He remembers um, the sadhu that he met outside the, in the courtyard in Benares. He's just like remembering all of these situations. And he's like, of course, I got this. And then um, Ananta turns to Jatendra and is like, you have to go along as a witness. And Jatendra obviously is kind of doubtful. He doesn't really want to go. He even asks Ananta, like, can you give me a couple of rupees just to have in my back pocket? Because I'm a little nervous about this. And Makunda's like, I'm not even participating if you take any money. Like, we can do this. So, um, so they get onto the, the train and almost immediately um, they get spoken to by these two men seated on the train saying, like, are you guys – do you have friends in Brindaban? What's your business going there? Um, and uh, Mukunda initially like denies any relationship with them or communication with them, which I thought was weird. So I was like, there's your first sign. Why are you denying like getting help from these people? Like that's your first sign. But he did. He was like, Oh no, you, you're misunderstanding. We're not just poor beggars. Like we, we have business in, in um, Brindaban. But they insist they end up taking them by the hand when they get off the train and taking them to this ashram where these two princes were supposed to be eating this amazing meal as devotees of Lord Krishna. And they end up having this really amazing feast. And um, I like how Makunda says to him, like, doubting Thomas the Lord works in hurried ways too. And, and they have this meal. But what's interesting is that as soon as they finish eating and they leave, um, Jachendra has forgotten what just happened pretty much. He's um, beset with misgivings. He says, a fine mess you've gotten me into. Our luncheon was only an accidental good fortune. And, um, and Mukunda says, you forget God quickly now that your stomach is filled. Uh, mm -hmm. He, and then I, I wanted to just continue this little piece. He says, um, my words, not bitter, were accusatory. How short is human memory for divine favors? And that definitely struck me um, because, you know, we all can probably think back to like divine favors and we forget and we forget to have faith and we forget to trust. No man lives who has not seen some of his prayers granted. Um, and then soon after that, this a young man approaches them under the tree and he says, I saw you in a vision. You're my guru. And so there's our first little like, you can't be a guru without being self-enlightened. So that was like the first hint that perhaps we're dealing with a being who is already enlightened, who is going through this life journey just in order to give us this very book and these life experiences to help everybody else go through the same and similar journeys and learn the same lessons. So he initiates this stranger into Kriya Yoga. Um, and 
and this stranger gives him money and buys him a ticket back to um, Anantas to Agra. He ends up also giving him all the food the, so they gets the sweetmeats. Jachendra in the meantime is just like beside himself because he's been so doubtful and now he's been shown like in so many ways in such a short amount of time how powerful uh, Mukunda's faith is to attract these miracles and he's there to witness all of it so when he gets back to Ananta, Ananta as he'd promised agrees to be initiated in the technique of Kriya Yoga too and becomes also uh, Mukunda's disciple so um, which is unusual in Indian culture for the older brother to you know follow the younger brother and his only superior would be his father but not in this case he's finally acknowledged like okay there's something to Mukunda he's got some gift or connection to um, spirit that is uncanny so you kind of see Ananta start to soften in this chapter after chapters and chapters of seeing him resist Mukunda's ways um, let's see And then they go see the Taj Mahal. Um, Jitendra ends up leaving and not going to Sarampura where they meet up with Sri Yukteswar. So Makuna ends up going alone to see his, um, his guru. Um, anything stand out to you guys in this chapter? Any little gems for you that you had highlighted or thoughts that you had? Um, oh. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, no, just um, his friend, how quickly he was to dismiss what had happened as coincidence. It makes me realize how often that we might have done so in our own lives. You know, we have good fortunes, like, oh, oh that's just coincidence, but we don't think anything more of it, um, which is, and then, you know, and it was such a big coincidence to be had, too, <laughs> but yet he needed more proof. <laughs> Right. Like, yep. Oh, um, for me, I I had kind of a hard time. Um, no, not hard time. I wasn't sure how to interpret this incident because in Tiger Swami chapter, um, you know, the he was challenged that you know you have to show me the miracle. You have to prove me that miracle happens, and then. Tiger Swami accepted out of his ego that, okay, I will show you. But then in this chapter, it was kind of reminded me of that um, scenario because uh, Mukunda's brother was saying, you know, you, you have to show me the miracle. And then Mukunda is saying, okay, I will show you. And I wasn't sure it's coming from ego or it's more divine thing. You know, I wasn't sure how to interpret this part. Mm -hmm. I see, I see your, your, your reason for pause on that. I yeah. think knowing Mukunda up until this chapter, yeah. we're able to see so many demonstrations of just his like love for the divine. Like he's yeah. just so pure in his like heart. I see how you're, how, you know, Ananta being like, I challenge you to do this. And I think I hadn't actually thought of it the way that you're talking about it right now, but I see what you're saying. However, I also feel like someone with such pure devotion and trust and so much faith in the divine, like it was a no brainer to him. Like there wasn't an ounce of ego in him saying like, 
oh, I'm going to prove this or make this happen. He was just a hundred percent in his, in a space of trust Mm -hmm. and faith that like, there wasn't a shred of doubt in his mind that God was going to pull through and show up for him um, because of, you know, his faith in the divine. So I'd, I'd say like in a, in an extreme devotional way that he's showing us that with complete faith and not a shred of doubt that we can, you know, because I think doubt comes from ego because ego can only come from a part of you that is disconnected and, and, and not part of the whole. So um, I feel like he is pretty much ego free in this, you know, in, in his strivings to know God, but I do see what you're saying there. Yeah, but that makes sense because I knew that it wasn't out of ego, but then mm-hmm. I was I couldn't explain then what it what is it? Yeah. And when Does you anybody say, else have? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. But when you say pure, uh, you know, belief, then that that made sense to me. Yeah. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? That just like purity of like of Makunda, did that come through for you guys too when you read this, or did anybody else think like, oh, this seems very like ego driven? I, I oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're fine. Oh, Oh, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, I saw it as faith, um, faith faith-based, that Mm -hmm. his faith is so complete and so total in God and the divine that um, it was easy for him to accept such a challenge for it. And yet, you know, for those you know, it, but then yet for us to accept such totality and faith, it's, is very hard and challenging. <laughs> and it's, well, for me personally, it's definitely, um, at, you know, near impossible to envision somebody with that much, or, you know, to be, or to have that much faith, um, in something that's kind of unseen <laughs> and intangible to some extent. Mm-hmm. Olivia, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Um, well, I just, I just kept thinking he, he's human and he's on this, um, he's on the, the path, but all these things unfold in front of him. You think he would be more inclined to, do the accepting I mean like he said that I saw you in my meditation you're my you know you're my guru you're you're it um so I I just took that as the human quality that things are presenting themselves to him he's had all these visions he's been doing things but still it's like he's saying I want a little bit more though give me more Mm -hmm. give me more Mm -hmm. that's how I took that like a constant seeker but he trusts Mm-hmm. He trusts it all, but right as he's seeing it and giving it, it, then it is, okay, now I want this. Yeah, yeah. Affirmation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but exactly. He's young. And he's young, you're right, yep. Yeah, all of that makes sense. And I think um, kind of what, like, you've all said this, but just like his level of faith, I think is the, the essence of this chapter. And I think it's the reason I love this chapter is like, imagine if we all could have a a certain degree of faith in the world, you know, like how could we apply it to our day-to-day life and to right now to what's happening in the world? Mm -hmm. Like 
imagine how much peace that would bring to have a faith in everything and have a faith that, you know, what's happening in your life is, is meant for you or, you know, what's coming next is what's meant because you have this faith. So, and I know like what, with us as we like go through things, like how many times we resist what comes up. We are so resistant to little things and big things in our life. Like we don't like, we don't want this. We don't want this. And we see examples of that with Mukunda too. For example, when he meets his, his guru in the last chapter and his guru says, go back to your home. And he's like, Nope, I'm not doing it. You know, like there's, you know, there's some resistance still like to his own guru, to this man he's been seeking or this guide he's been seeking all his life. So we still see kind of that um, in Mukunda, but this chapter just embraces this whole like concept of like what surrender and what faith he has mm -hmm. in the divine and um, examples of it playing out for him um, on this little like task he's on to go and get food, get money, get his way back with Jatendra tagging along on all his doubts and Makunda just staying so steadfast in his faith. So yeah, it's a good chapter. Um, any last comments about this chapter before we move on? Well, this is one thing that I wrote, excuse me, was um, something about the name of God, the the rapid development, and I, it took us back to J.C. Bowes that mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. with the rapid development of the plants, then it was the rapid development of scriptures, of learning million years, mm -hmm. liberation from your Maya. Yeah, that was where um, he, so Pratap Chatterjee, who was the man that found them under the tree and said, you're my guru. Um, the initiation was concluded in half an hour. Kriya Yoga was given to the new student. Um, the technique, which as you see is simple, embodies the art of quickening man's spiritual evolution. Hindu scriptures teach that the incarnation, incarnating ego requires a million years to obtain liberation from Maya. You guys remember the word Maya is illusion. It's like this world we're living in is Maya. It's set up as a, like this almost like stage for us to play out all of our karmas and our experiences. This natural period is greatly shortened through Kriya Yoga. So through the practice of Kriya Yoga, those million years needed to obtain liberation are lessened just as a plant growth, just as plant growth can be accelerated far beyond its normal rate. As Bose has demonstrated, so man's psychological development can also be speeded by scientific means. Be faithful in your practice. You will approach the guru of all gurus. So yeah, he makes reference back to all of the work that Bose had done in the plants and just tying it into it being a science. And that's a lot of what this book is about is like tying it into, you know, when he talks about prana and chi and, and it's not so much this woo woo thing that you can't touch, but he's breaking it down into pretty much quantum physics, which back when this book was written was very limited in study. But today, um, quantum physics has been able to break down like atoms and molecules are not the most are not the smallest 
material. Now they can look down into a molecule and an atom and find sparks and quarks and, and see that there's an intelligence to them that they still can't fully explain, but there's this intelligent energy that is underlying everything. And, um, and Kriya Yoga and these practices are means of manipulating that energy in order to help us evolve quicker. So was that kind of like what you had pulled from that, Olivia? Oh, yes, because I saw, I mean, it's like he's doing the stepping stone mm-hmm. or it's like he's picking up all the, the pieces um, as he goes. Yeah. Stepping stone is a good way of saying it. Yeah. I think stepping stones is like the best way of describing it because as we continue, he just keeps kind of piggybacking on things that he's been through. So like he's slowly teaching us about things without overwhelming us. So each chapter has like another lesson and another lesson that builds and builds and builds. So yeah. Awesome. This okay. book reminds me of the Petit Prince. Uh, I don't know, the Little Prince, the French author's book. The prince visits mm. each planet mm-hmm. and then meets different people. Mm-hmm. This yeah. book reminds me of that. Yeah, a little journey, a little journey, right? Uh-huh. One thing to the next. Good. All right. So in chapter 12, Years in My Master's Hermitage. Let me see. This was a very long chapter. This was what you were talking about, Yuko. Now I know. I was like, oh, here's that long chapter that Yuko had mentioned. Yep. Was it this one or the next one? Yeah. Oh, I think that was when he met his guru. I mean, when he yeah. was with his master. Yeah, so he finally arrives with Sri Yukteswar. And Sri Yukteswar tells him... Um, are you ready to follow my instructions? Because the last time he saw me got some pushback by him asking him to go back to his home. And Makunda's like, no longer your wish shall be my law. I'm going to listen to you. And then the master says, well, I want you to go back to college. And of course, Makunda doesn't want to hear this. However, his master says, well, you're going to be going to the West someday and the people there will be more receptive to India's ancient wisdom. If this strange Hindu teacher has a university degree. So he had this foresight that Mukunda would be carrying these teachings to the West as he's done. And he had the foresight to say like, and you should have a degree when you go. So, um, so Mukunda ended up going to, to college to, you know, I think he went to like, it was like a, um, a Scottish college in India to complete his studies. Um, he, this one, he, he teaches him three lessons. He asks, can you tell me some stories of your childhood? And Sri Tassar says, sir, I'll tell you a few. One, each one with a moral. He chooses three. So the first one about his mother telling him that there was a ghost in the dark chamber. And, and what does Shriek Dishwar do? He goes straight down into the chamber to find the ghost and is disappointed to not find the ghost. Um, he says, my mother never told me another horror tale again. And his moral, look fear in the face and it will cease to trouble you. Um, another early memory for the ugly dog belonging to the neighbor, um, kept his household in turmoil for weeks to get the dog. Um, the attached moral here attachment is blinding it lends imaginary halo of attractiveness to the object of desire so be detached and the third story of um a man who accepts a job under anyone as a slave 
something that his mother had said occasionally when he was a child. And that impression became so incredibly fixed that even when I, after my marriage, I refused all positions. Um, and this lesson was um, good and positive suggestions should be, in, should instruct the sensitive ears of children. Their early ideas long remain sharply etched. So three little, little lessons he chose to go with when he explained to Makunda something about his childhood. Um, he granted Makunda with Kriya Yoga initiation, even though he already received it from um, Kebalananda and Lahiri Mahashai prior. Um, but this time he had this great light break into his being, um, like countless suns blazing together, a flood of um, bliss overwhelmed his heart. So experiencing this um, samadhi state. Um, he tells Mukunda, return in 30 days. And he ends up going home. His father said he had like prayed for Mukunda to find a master that wasn't far off in the Himalayas and was very pleased that he found his guru close to home so that it didn't take Mukunda far permanently and enrolled in the Scottish Church College in Calcutta. So years go by and he studies. He spends a lot more time in meditation and studying the spiritual practices, but he gets by with passing grades. Um, daily life flowed smoothly. Uh, let's see. Diet, one's constitution, a little bit about the experience there in the presence of Sri Yukteswar. There's a lesson here, how to outwit a mosquito that was amusing about him being bit from head to toe and a little lesson about Ahimsa. So Ahimsa is one of the first lessons in the Yoga Sutras from Patanjali. And there's reference made here about that. Um, Mukunda goes to swat a mosquito, but he doesn't follow through. And the master says, well, why don't you just finish the job? And Mukunda says, Master, do you advocate taking a life? And Sri Yukteswar says, no, but in your mind, you've already struck the death blow. So you might as well. So remembering that Ahimsa actually starts in the mind. So it's not just an outward expression of, of, um, of violence, but it's the thoughts that you think. So it makes Ahimsa even more challenging as we're, you know, driving through traffic or, you know, dealing with people from day to day, just watching all of our thoughts and noticing where we have harmful thoughts towards others and re recognizing that that is actually not Ahimsa. So starting to literally practice Ahimsa daily. Um, he also asks, well, Guruji, should one offer himself a sacrifice to a wild beast? And I know I mentioned this earlier in prior chapters about a human being being more advanced than our animal um, counterparts on the planet. And Sri Yukteswar saying, no man, no man's body is precious. It is the highest evolution, evolutionary value because of unique brain and spinal centers. These enable the advanced devotee fully to grasp and express the loftiest aspects of divinity. No lower form is so equipped. 
It is true that a man incurs the debt of a minor sin if he is forced to kill an animal or any other living thing, but the holy Shastras teach that wanton loss of human body is a serious transgression transgression against karmic law. So um, there's the reference that I was speaking of when I had mentioned that human beings are the more advanced on this planet because they're able to actually experience samadhi and oneness whereas animals are said not to have the spinal column or the brain or the function to do so uh let's see and i highlighted another part here on the next page page 129 in my book says medicines have limitations the divine creative life force has none believe that and you shall be well and strong. So um, a lot of references to the power of the mind and to our belief and to our faith. And this goes back to even the tiger Swami um, believing that he was healthy and strong and transforming his body and his abilities in order to fight tigers by the power of his mind. And here Sri Yukteswar saying that, um, you know, medicines have limitations, but divine creative life force has none. Um, he also talks about um, gaining and losing weight quickly with uh, Lahiri Mahashaya. So do you guys remember that story? He's actually mm-hmm. was a devotee of Lahiri Mahashaya, and he goes to him saying that um, you know he wasn't well. And Lahiri Mahashaya said, well, maybe tomorrow you'll be better. Like he put it into him to think of himself feeling better. And the next day he shows up and he's like, I'm well, I feel great. What did I do? And um Lahiri Mahashaya says, well, you did it, you know, maybe tomorrow you won't feel great. And he put into his head, like the worry and the doubt, like, oh no, maybe tomorrow I'm not going to feel so good. Well, lo and behold, the next day he doesn't feel good anymore. And he shows up saying, okay, I don't feel good anymore. What has happened? And he's helping him understand the power of the mind and, you know, what you allow into your focus um, when it comes to your own body and feeling well or unwell. So he says, I see you, Kishwar, you have made yourself unwell, and now you think you are thin. Um, and then he says, let me see. I am sure you ought to feel better tomorrow. And then he says, my receptive mind accepted his words as a hint that he was secretly healing me. The next morning, I sought him out and explained, sir, I feel much better today. And then Lahiri says, indeed, today you invigorate yourself. So he's giving it to him. And he says, no, master, I, it's you that helped me feel this way. And, and he says, your malady has been quite serious. Your body is frail yet. Who can say how it will be tomorrow? So he puts in this bit of doubt into Sri Dishwar's mind. And then the following morning, I could hardly drag myself to his house, to Mahashaya's house. Sir, I'm ailing again. Um, so, and he says, oh, once more, you indispose yourself. So um, I liked that little lesson um, about your thoughts alternating between weak and strong. Uh, And here he says, you have seen how your health has exactly followed your subconscious expectations. Thought is a force, even as electricity and gravitation or gravitation. The human mind is a spark of the almighty consciousness of God. I could show you that whatever your powerful mind believes very intensely would instantly come to pass. And um, there's like, our whole movement these days, uh, well, not recently, but like think about The Secret, that book, The Secret that came out. And that was for a lot of people the first um, the first inkling into this 
possibility that thoughts and affirmations and intentions could change, you know, your life or your mind or attract or repel things. Um, but look back in this book, we have this coming from the guru saying there is something to this. So, um, and I think it goes on to talk about how he gained like 50 pounds in a day. <laughs> and then that actually attracted a bunch of new followers to Lahiri Mahashai because of this miracle. Um, he says, all creation is governed by law. The principles that operate in the outer universe, discoverable by scientists, are called natural laws, but there are subtler laws that rule the hidden spiritual planes and the inner realm of consciousness. These principles are knowable through the science of yoga. It is not the physicist, but the self-realized realization master who comprehends the true nature of matter. By such knowledge, Christ was able to restore the seven the servant's ear after it had been severed by one of the disciples. So he makes reference also to Christ who we had spoken about last time, considering Jesus and Buddha and all of them to be um, advanced yogis, understanding the spiritual science of yoga. Um, and another bit shortly after Mukunda is meditating and Sri Tishwar says, you're not here. You know, he's trying to meditate and Sri Tishwar is looking into his mind saying, you're not here. And Mukunda is like, I haven't stirred. My eyelids haven't moved. I'm right here. Um, but Sri Tishwar is able to look in and see that he's not totally present. But what he's thinking about, I think, is what um, comes up next is the headquarters that someday Mukunda will develop in um, one in India and, and then two in California. Um, the yoga school on the plane in Ranchi, then an American headquarters in Los Angeles Hilltop, and then an er Hermitage in Encinitas, California, overlooking the Pacific. So um, he's, he's never prof he says his master never prophesizes things, but he says like, maybe it will happen. And, and all of those three things came to, um, came to be. Um, let's see, a little bit about, let's see if there was something else in here that I really wanted to bring up. Yeah, there's just a, there's a lot of little teachings from Sri Yukteswar in here. Um, we get to the story about um, Kumar, who comes to the ashram and is obviously Sri Dishwar's favorite for some time. But eventually, you know, Kumar didn't listen to Sri Dishwar's warnings and heedings, and he ended up going and being mixed up with the, the pleasures of the world. And they had to ask Kumar to actually leave the ashram, which was really sad for both Mukunda and for Sri Yukteswar, but he had um, kind of gone into worldly pleasures and allures. Um, enjoyments of wine and sex are rooted in the natural man. To appreciate them, one requires no delicacy of perception. Sense wiles are comparable to an evergreen oleander, fragrant, fragrant with its rosy colored flowers. Every part of the plant is poisonous. Um, and talks a little bit about um, being, being man and having that 
um, ability to have our to have willpower and to stay focused and not to be swept up in worldly desires um, to destroy those wrong desires now otherwise they will remain with you after the astral body has been separated from the physical casing even when the flesh is weak the mind should be constantly resistant if temptation assails you with cruel force, overcome it by impersonal analysis and indomitable will. Every natural passion can be mastered. Um, and it talks a little bit about just Sri Yukteswar's general personality, about how he is uh, pretty tough on his disciples if they are willing to be open to that he's pretty much trying to shape them and whittle out their egos and call them out on their stuff um, which is what a disciple that wants to experience enlightenment needs and it can be harsh and um, and if if someone has a lot of ego still attached it could be very hard to hear so it definitely takes a certain type of person to be engaged in part of this uh with uh, Sri Yukteswar because he's not going easy on his disciples and his followers, nor on Mukunda. Um, and it tells a few little stories about, you know, some of the people that come and go from the ashram and, and their experience with Sri Yukteswar. But um, generally it kind of closes up just with talking about his experience with, with Sri Yukteswar. Anybody have anything they want to add to this pretty long chapter? Any thoughts? Just when he was meditating, he um, told him, the Lord does not, I don't invade your thoughts. I don't take, I don't um, change them. I don't control them. Um, I'm I'm in there. So he was letting him know that it, it's your free will. I don't make right. these. Yeah. He's not like invading his mental space without permission or something. It's like he's become his disciple to, to grow. And that's Shree Dishwar's job is to be aware of his state so that he can help him to evolve, but he's not someone that's going to go and just invade your thoughts without your free will. And I liked when he was meditating and he was checking to see if he was dead or not because oh, he was right. yeah. such a state. He was underneath him and he was checking the mirror under his nose. There was no breath. Yeah. And, and then it says like Sri Yukteswar is chuckling like, I'm alive. Like I'm still here. But he was giving him an example, I think of that was around the mosquito, right? That was when they were. Yes. Getting taken alive by the mosquito and he was showing him how to go inward and kind of experience a state of samadhi um, instead of getting bitten by the mosquitoes. Yeah, that was a good part right there. I liked that too. And it's not the part... Oh. I don't know. This this had a lot in it. It did. It was so and I, you just loved stuff. his um, 
his master. I get confused because there are so many names for mm -hmm. the same thing, mm -hmm. or but it, but a tweaked, I guess, in the meaning. Right. Do you guys ever go down and read the subtitle or the little bits below the little notes? notes? Yes. Yeah, sometimes those help me because like you said, there's a lot of words that seem kind of interchangeable. And so whenever I see that little asterisk, I'm like, okay, wait, let me drop down and make sure I understand what they're talking about. And I find those little notes to be pretty helpful um, sometimes when I'm getting mixed up with the words and stuff. But uh, yeah, good. Alrighty, so let's go on to chapter 13. Where is my child? The Sleepless Saint. All right, who would like to volunteer for just the briefest explanation of the Sleepless Saint? Or as long as you want it to be. You can just kind of summarize. I can do it too if you want me to, but any volunteers? I can do it. So in this chapter, Mukunda requests a trip to the Himalayas to get away from his academic and his hermitage duties. And he goes without his master's permission. So, I mean, it's like, why does he keep doing these things? He's just not, he's kind of like sometimes a little bit of a rebel. So Mukunda asked his professor for the address of Ram Gopal Muzumdar, the sleepless saint who stays awake in this ecstatic consciousness in Ranbajpur. And on his way, Mukunda ignores the large sacred stone in Tarekshwar, where people have been healed. Um, and there's a little rebuke or judgment as he passes it by, right? He like, I don't know, he just doesn't acknowledge it as like what, as, as something spiritual or worthy of his, you know, acknowledgement. He's traveling by foot he takes a wrong turn and he goes really far out of his way. Mm -hmm. and, um, his destination seems no closer as he walks. It's getting hot. He's going through paddy fields. He finally meets Ram Gopal, who explains that some holy shrines are nuclear centers of spiritual power noting that he knows Mukunda had ignored that stone. And he reminds us that God is in everything. So I love that reminder um, just because like we're in yoga, we're taught this, like everything is God, like it's all divinity. And for, we can't just deny one manifestation of God and accept another, like we have to be allow, allow ourselves to embrace the divinity and everything. So he kind of gives Mukunda a lesson about like, don't just disregard that stone and think you're above it or think that it's not something that deserves your attention or your, um, or your, your, your worship, like God is in everything. Um, Gopal tells Mukunda that the little room where he meditates at Yukteswar's Hermitage serves as his meditation cave, and he does not need to go to the mountains to find the kingdom of God. Another gem, because I think often, like, we're like, I need to get out of here. I need to make, like, I need to go on some kind of retreat. I need to leave the space. I need to go somewhere. I need to go find a teacher. And, and the lesson here is, like, you can find that inner sanctuary 
exactly where you are. You don't have to go anywhere to experience enlightenment or to grow. Like your surroundings are your surroundings. This is your, your tools are all around you um, for your own growth. So wherever you are, that can be your meditation cave. Uh, let's see. These words instantly banish Makunda's obsession for the Himalayas, which is like, finally, by chapter 13, Makunda finally can stop obsessing over the Himalayas. So he then goes um, as visitor to Rangopal's home in a jungle village where they meditate and they eat a meal. When Mukunda asks Gopal to grant him samadhi, Gopal tells him that his body is not yet ready for this cosmic cur uh, current. Gopal explains that he has meditated for so many hours and years that his body goes into a suspended state in which his organs are not required to function, allowing him to totally dispense with sleep. Gopal does not believe that one may fully know God even in 45 years of meditation. So it's kind of like, don't expect to be there instantly. Like this is your journey, even in 45 years of meditation. Um, don't expect to know God fully. He tells Mukunda about meeting Baba, uh, Babaji and they go into a meditative state. He is invited to go to sleep, but Mukunda is unable to sleep due to this blazing light around him, even with his eyes shut. When Mukunda goes to leave, Gopal floods him with the peace and heals a long-time back pain. And on his way back, Mukunda stops and meditates at that same sacred stone um, that he had previously just passed by. And then he later gets onto a train to Calcutta, and he realizes that his travels did not end in mountains, but in the Himalayan presence of his master. So... Um, Worship being one of the lessons here, worship is in what the, what the symbols represent. So for the stone, it might have just been a stone, but what it represented was divinity. So worship is not in the symbol, but in what it represents. And samadhi, a certain state of samadhi, for someone who's not ready, for samadhi can fry the brain, can kind of like affect the central nervous system. Um, in one of Yogananda's books, he speaks of an 81-year-old atheist woman changed by meeting Yogananda and within a few years attaining salvation. So it's not that it can't happen quickly, but it just depends on how much devotion and how evolved and how much time you spend um, in meditation and in yoga and in contemplating and in watching your thoughts, how much work you do in the practice of yoga. But, um, it, but don't be discouraged because... Like it said, in uh, one of his books, he speaks of 81-year-old atheist woman who was changed in meeting Yogananda and attained this samadhi state within a few years. So um, everybody's kind of different in their journey. And so don't just assume that you would need to take 45 years, but don't just assume you could do it in a couple years either. So it's really about surrender and trusting your path in the process. Um, do you guys have any questions about... Chapter 13. Oh, it's not that I had a question. I have a question, but um, I really like that um, I got to kind of glimpse what it's like to uh, be in Samadhi because mm -hmm. I had no idea what it's like, but then it's like, you know, 
your breath stops and then your whole body relaxes. And I was like, wow. The so, description is really nice. Yeah. yeah to so get it that. Was mm-hmm. nice to have that, you know, glimpse so that I can better understand what they're going through. Mm-hmm. In right. All right, so chapter 14, an experience in cosmic consciousness. So in chapter 14, Mukunda returns to his guru, who is not angry about his abrupt departure and abandonment of his duties at the Hermitage. Yukteswar tells him that since he expects nothing from others, their actions cannot be in opposition to his wishes. I like that. I was like, (laughs) wow. (laughs) Imagine if we all could just, you know, expect nothing from others and, and have no opposition because we just, we just like Shreep Tashwar, like we expect nothing. Um, So no expectations is a little message right there. Something that we can all strive towards. I'm sure. Um, Mukunda experiences a cosmic love for his master. Um, Mukunda is sitting in meditation but having trouble focusing when Yukteswar loudly calls him out. Again, it's like what happened in the prior chapter where he's like, you're not paying attention, you're not here. Well, Yukteswar calls him out again. He knows that Mukunda is meditating haphazardly with his mind distributed like leaves in a storm, which I liked because I'm like, that's how I meditate sometimes. (laughs) Like my mind like leaves in a storm. I think we can all relate. Um, and seems to pity Mukunda for being in this state, for not having found what he was looking for in the mountains. Uh, Yukteswar strikes Mukunda on the chest, and Mukunda's spiritual body escapes into an intense awareness of everything around him, including the atomic structures, roots of plants, and an all-perceptive simultaneous vision of what we ordinarily are not able to see with our own eyes. His experience, he experiences the nature of solid matter as energy and is able to see through everything, perceiving that all is light, energy, cause, and effect. He observes, he observes rhythmic patterns of the universe and galaxies, watching creation take form and dissolve, and hears the sound of the universal ohm. Um, so there's another little glimpse into right, this, this state Returning to his body, his master warns him not to, do, to get too drunk with ecstasy, asking him to sweep the floor before they take a walk. So it's like, he really brings him back. He's like, here's your experience of oneness with all. Here's your samadhi. And then he comes back. He's like, okay, now go back to your duty, sweep the floor, which I like because it's like, we are, as much as we are seekers of yoga and God and being devotional, we still have our work to do here, right? We all are here with lots of work and karmic duties to fulfill in our, our, um, what do you call it? Our, the word is escaping me right now, but, um, our dharmas, we all have our dharma here in this lifetime. So he says, don't get too drunk with ecstasy. Now go and sweep the floor. Um, Makunda sees the importance of doing the earthly work as well, but never forgets what he learned about the true nature of form and matter. So he's, he's able to be in the world and be in the Maya with now this 
remembrance of what is true, of what's just behind the curtain, you know, what's been revealed to him. Mukunda realizes that when he experiences the joy of meditation, he is suddenly directed to adopt the right course. Um, so joy, one lesson here is bliss is a divine quality. Joy is communion with divine. So sometimes in meditation, I'm not sure if any of you can relate, but have you ever been meditating and there's no actual reason for experiencing bliss or joy, but you just get this rising of just peace and joy and love and bliss within. It's not really that uncommon. You might watch for that. That is by our yoga philosophy, a definition of one way that we're merging with the divine. So we can all have a little bit of that experience and recognize that as being this, this union that's happening. So um, recognize that, or at least maybe if you think back and you had a moment of just experiencing bliss without an external factor, it's not like you experience it because someone hands you unexpected money or, you know, it, it's more something that comes from within. So watching for that bliss or that joy. Um, another note I have here. Well, we kind of talked about that. Okay, yeah, we already talked about that. Did anybody else have any thoughts on 14? Actually, I have a couple more notes. Let me see what I wrote here. Um, Uh, so just that mention, I think it was in the last chapter, actually, there was a mention about the astral body and the physical body. And I drew that little image for you guys in our last lesson about how we have the spark of our soul. And then we have our astral body, which separates from our physical body at the time of our physical body's death, but that that astral form remains. And what is carried in that astral form is pretty much the the blueprint of our, our karma is that we are still working on in our lessons and all the memories of our lessons. And then we're born into a new physical body and working through those same karmas. All right. So that complete. Oh yeah, go ahead. So I can kind of understand why meditation helps you to connect with divine, but I'm still trying to figure out how um, yoga will help you to do that like a physical movement okay yeah i can talk about that a little bit so physical yoga is only something that kind of came about early 1900s so um if you were to look back in the ancient texts you wouldn't find a downward dog or a warrior one you'll find seated meditation if anything you might find some breathing practices but but very little to no asana is what we call it, right? Um, and even in Patanjali's definition of the eight limbs of yoga, asana comes, I think, third or fourth? Fourth. I, yama. I think third. Yama. Is it third asana? Yeah. Pranayama. Yeah. Third in the eight limbs of yoga. Thanks, Teresa. And, um, and, and that is not so... It, Patanjali didn't have chaturangas in mind when he talked about that the belief is or the understanding is and it makes total sense to me is that our bodies are connected to spirit 
Um, anything you do on a physical level can affect our energy level. Anything you can do on an energy level can affect our physical level. So certain postures are known to have. Oh, go ahead, Yuko. Can you repeat that, please? Sure. So our physical, yeah, our physical body has a direct impact on our energy body, and our energy body has a direct impact on our physical body so by doing certain things with our physical body we can affect our energy which speaks to examples like the foods that you might eat so the foods you eat affect your energy we can all agree on that um, certain things we do like taking a walk in nature can affect our energy um, even like spending time with your dog can affect your energy. Being in an unclean place can affect your energy. Cleaning your house can affect your energy. So the poses were put together for one reason, to have an impact on our energy, because it was recognized that tension held in the body can then affect how well energy can flow through all of our meridians and our nadis, which are like the energy pathways of prana that flow through our body. On a second level, and the one that I would say is more widely accepted is those ancient yogis, they knew that meditation would lead to enlightenment, but they also knew that an unhealthy body could not possibly sit for longer than a few minutes to contemplate meditation or in contemplation. So if you have a body that hasn't eaten well, hasn't stretched, is full of stress, has tight shoulders, tight neck, misaligned spine, misaligned hips, um, that body, try to sit them down in meditation and there's going to be so much physical distress, their mind will never get beyond what's happening in the moment in their body, right? Their mind is always going to be stuck on this hurts, that hurts, this sucks, this is uncomfortable, I'm tight, I'm tense, I'm stressed, my thoughts. So the practice of asana was designed to help bring more balance to the physical structures of the body so that that body could then eventually sit for long periods of time in meditation. So it's kind of making the body, recognizing the body can be an obstacle if it's not healthy and asana being a means to get the body healthy because when you move your body up, down, sideways, twisted out, what's happening on the inside too, keep in mind is like a twist takes your organs and it like a sponge twists it. So if you had an organ full of old blood and metabolic waste and toxins um, and kind of just like bogged down with extra fluids and you're trying to like function at your most optimum, it's not going to happen. But if you have a body that's starting to breathe with a regular pace, lots of oxygen coming in, lots of carbon dioxide going out, you have nice amount of oxygen coming in. Then you twist and that organ rinses out all the toxins and the uh, extra blood and fluids and the lymphatic fluid gets to go into the lymphatic system. And then when it comes out of that twist, it reabsorbs the fresh oxygenated cleansed blood that's surrounding it. And then that, that organ is functioning better. And then that organ is making you healthier. So it's like that physical practice has such a powerful effect on our, our health and then our mind and then our state that it just makes meditation happen so much easier. Does that make sense? Yes. So mm -hmm. yoga itself is not um, like when you're in warrior one, I'm not expecting you to have a moment of samadhi in warrior one. We're just doing the work and taking those stepping stones to make it more possible or easier for us to reach that samadhi state later on. It's one of those stepping stones um, that we take 
for someone that's doing yoga this way, because asana yoga is only part of raja yoga. Remember, there's four paths, raja, yana, bhakti, and raja, yana, bhakti, and karma. So a raja yogi is someone who is doing this eight limbs of yoga, um, of recognizing yamas, be kind to yourself, niyamas, be kind to everyone else, asana, do your physical practice, pranayama, do your breathing practice, and then practicing those higher states of meditation, dharana, dhyana, until you get to samadhi. So um, it's a, I think raja yoga is for the general public, probably the easiest one to follow because there's these steps to take. And asana is in there just for the reason I just stated, because it just makes the next step a little bit easier. Um, so the yoga I was doing in your class, uh, mm -hmm. it's all in one of those, or it's all combined? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yoga, what's that? So when I teach, yeah, so in the West, obviously yoga has become more of like a, a fatty, like fad. It's about like having a fancy yoga mat and Lululemon clothes, and it's a workout. And, you, you know, yogis have like long lean muscles, and they're fit, and they're healthy, and they drink green juice, right? So this is our Western yogi world approach has absolutely so little to do with what kind of yoga we're talking about here. So I will admit to some degree, I am catering to the Western world when I teach yoga because I'm teaching a vigorous vinyasa class. I'm making people sweat. I'm making people feel better about themselves when they leave. They feel like they got a good workout. And I think with my background in understanding yoga from this perspective, I'm weaving in bits of wisdom and knowledge about what what I understand yoga to be and the people that are perceptive to that will pick it up and seek me out and be like oh I want to do your meditation thing oh I want to read this book with you I want to do your teacher training but there's also a huge number of people who want to come to hot yoga because it's hard it's hot it makes them look better it makes them feel better and they feel stronger physically with not much thought of of enlightenment or like taking it to be a lifestyle physical you know? Exactly. So I'd say that when I teach, I'm catering to probably the Western world's perspective of yoga. And then I'm open to whoever wants to take it a little bit further with me. So um, just trying to like, you know, cater to the broader pop, you know, popular yoga, I'd say. Um, the vinyasa practice itself that I teach when I teach vinyasa, because I also teach gentle and yin and all of those things. Those postures are meant to ease tension and release stress and make you feel better. But that was, you know, the whole purpose of then going into meditation, feeling better. So if someone were to come to my yoga class to do their practice and then be like, I want to take this further, I would teach exactly what I taught. I would just be like, Hey, now we're going to meditate and breathe, you know, like let's take it a step further. So mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Wow. What is interesting, I had my um, doctor's appointment um, in Philadelphia with a, my cardiologist, and he asked me, what am I, what am I doing with exercising? Because it's normally walking the dog um, 10 blocks. He said, are you still doing yoga? And I said, yes. And he said to me, are you meditating too? And I said, I, I, said, I'm, 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 I said, I'm working on that. Mm -hmm. But that, I found that interesting. That's so neat. 
Yeah. yeah. So he was definitely promoting meditation for you, like pushing it or suggesting it would be good for you. I guess he was just telling me Curious. that was, you know, maybe he was saying what, what you were saying. Yeah. That you have to go the next step to. Interesting. Yeah. I love when I find doctors that are like, using, and I think even in this chapter, it talks somewhere about doctors, like, you know, like, it's not that medicine's bad, medicine's good, but take it also with the Eastern perspective too, and you get like a really powerful concoction of healing, right? So doctors that can stand by their Western medicine training, and then also say like, do yoga and meditate and breathe, recognize that there's some power to that, so... And my gynecologist, I took this just when I started and I saw her and she said, are you reading, and we have the same birthday, born the same day. She said, are you reading that? She said, I did. She says, I got about halfway through. She says, it was too heavy for, for me, but she's been meditating for 17 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, now you can go and you can, you can help her after this and be like, if you want to keep reading, you can talk about it now. <laughs> Group. <laughs> what's that yeah join this reading group yeah exactly <laughs> well yeah. you can always send her um the links that i put up of i kind of i take what we talk about and i kind of clip it and merge it and cut out stuff that is not necessary so it becomes just like this little compact little recording so if you ever need to share it with someone you can just copy and share that link too it'll be like oh here's chapter 10 through 15 if you want to learn more so yeah. oh thank you yeah that's so cool yeah a lot of people know of the book and it just sits on their bookshelf for years and they never get into it because it's dense it's like a lot of stuff in these chapters so Alrighty. let's go to our final are we on our final chapter chapter 15 already yeah, we are. Okay. So let me give you our little yep. summary of 15. So, oh, this is the cauliflower thief. This one's funny. Makunda yeah. has presented his master with six huge cauliflowers that he had planted and nurtured with his own hands. Yukteswar asked him to keep them in his own room for a special dinner. They're at the seaside uh, resort of Puri. And they go for a walk down on the beach and the master asks whether Makunda had neglected to lock the back door of the hermitage. So he has like this moment of like insight, I guess, like, did you lock the back door? Um, and notes that he will be punished for his neglect. A disoriented peasant enters the ashram by the back door and he only takes one of the cauliflowers. And Yukteswar implies that he directed the peasant to Makunda's cauliflowers to teach him a lesson. Um, which is kind of a funny little like thing. He doesn't take all of them. He just takes one. He randomly goes in and takes a cauliflower. When the radio became known years later, Makunda re realizes that his master was a perfect human radio. And this incident reminds him that thoughts are simply vibrations being picked up at different frequencies. Master had picked up on the peasant's desire for a cauliflower and had directed him to Makunda's room through intuition or soul guidance. And when the mind is free from interference and restless static, one is able to send and receive thoughts. The goal of yoga is to silence the mind so that one may hear the counsel of the inner voice. 
Yukteswar knows that technolo technology phenomenon is due to the future, due in the future, and mentions it often to Mukunda. When Mukunda is directed to lead the disciples over burning hot sand for a religious procession, a cooling rain poured, poured down for the duration of the parade in response to Yukteswar's plea. Mukunda describes the four-year festivals sponsored by Yukteswar with singing, chanting, flutes, drums, and cymbals, and flowers honoring the master. And then it goes on to talk about music um, described as causing a temporary vibratory awakening in the spinal center of humans. And the Indian Sankritans, or music gatherings, are an effective form of yoga. The chapter goes on to explain the technical aspects of Indian music and how sound is related to and intertwined with spirituality. Um, and then there's a little note I made in here. Divine contemplation must not be made an excuse for material carelessness. So, like have one foot in that divine contemplation, but have the other foot in your, your life <laughs> and in responsibility for your life and your materials and your things and your jobs, etc. Any thoughts or comments on this chapter? This was my most favorite chapter. <laughs> was it? <laughs> Vibration, you know, mm -hmm. uh, music. Music. So yeah, it it kind of connected with Reiki a lot to me. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed this chapter because it made it helped me to understand how Reiki works too. So. Yeah, I find that a lot, um, a lot of little side by sides in this book in general, and like my Reiki understanding. Like I'm like, oh yeah, that like goes hand in hand. I find myself saying that a lot too. So um, I feel like. I feel like you guys all did Reiki with me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone here did Reiki with me. Yeah. Have you guys felt that too? Kind of like reading, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense based on what we learned a little bit about Reiki. So um, I made a note in here about coincidences, saying we attract coincidences. There's willpower and there's karma behind everything. Not all things are synchronicities. There are reasons and causes. So um, the thing about him saying, like, did you lock the back door? And then having that intuition, kind of like trusting your intuitions and maybe less assuming that there are all coincidences and maybe being willing to just tie a little bit more into, like, this divine plan sort of. Um, let's see. I had a lot of notes about chakras in here, but I feel like we've kind of talked a lot about chakras in other lessons and stuff. Mm. Yeah. Any final thoughts on this chapter? Well, I didn't know how the Reiki and those, you know, uh, um, vibration and 
atom thing works, prana works. But then if you think about Wi-Fi and then all those frequency thing, it's there, but we just don't see it. We, mm -hmm. we're, we're not equipped to, to catch those frequencies. So we're, you just don't see it, but it's there. So it mm -hmm. kind of made sense to me. And then one of the, um, someone said that um, it's there, but our descendants in the future will reveal those or find those or something right. like that. So I was like, yeah. oh, I can't wait to see those. I know, right? Yeah. I, I, I know what you mean, like, cause look at like, what we've been able to prove science-wise today compared to 50 years ago, or if you tried to explain Wi-Fi to someone even 100 years ago, they would be like, huh, what? <laughs> or a cell phone, or like, how do I dial a number on my phone and reach you, or send a text and it's instantly in your inbox, you know, like, these things that we're, we're able to do these days are were inexplainable or incomprehensible to people from our past. So as we continue to advance, um, who knows what we'll be able to actually like identify, but, but you're right. Acknowledging like if someone were to ask you, how does electricity work? I probably couldn't explain it, but we have so much faith in it. Like if I, if I try to flip <laughs> on my light in here and it doesn't work, I'm going to be mad. I'm going to be like, what's going on with this light? It's supposed to turn on. Like I have faith in that light switch. So, um, yeah, so like have faith in your own light switches. <laughs> have faith in your own electricity, your own energy, because um because that faith alone is gonna make it really powerful to tap into. All right, well good jobs today, you guys. Gotten through some good stuff. Let me take a look at our chapter 16 real quick and see what that looks like. Outwitting the stars. Let's see. Outwitting the stars to chapter 20, which is called Do Not Visit Kashmir. 181 to 210. Oh, yeah, that's... That's a, it looks like less reading than the last bit we had to get through. <laughs> so let's do that. Let's do chapter 16 through 20 for next week. And um, how are you guys doing on reading? I'm just curious. Are you guys pacing yourself? Are you like cramming it in the night before? How's that working for you guys? the assignment like 10 minutes or 15 minutes uh -huh. before the class <laughs> well i'd say that's good timing <laughs> oh. uh, yeah how about you olivia how do you do it do you read a chapter a day? i've been there's so much to assimilate i you know um i probably read five ten pages or so and then things that i read they hit me during the time um, the mosquito, I was thinking growing up, we were not allowed to kill anything except flies and mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. That was legal. Despite everything, you saved everything. And I was outside and I probably had 30 on me after the rain. And I'm swatting over the place and I'm thinking about, ooh, you know, I'm zipped. <laughs> no, I, oh, I'm not practicing. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's what I do. I, to do a whole chapter, I don't have enough um, in my schema. I don't have enough to 
draw in to have it all make sense connection yeah. like connections making putting those pieces I like that I like the five like and that's that's easy enough to get through just five and then letting it kind of soak in how about you Teresa how do you do it well I well as you know I've already read through the book oh right and, you've done this with me before yeah and I I just generally go through the chapters and look at all my underlines which there is a lot of <laughs> mm -hmm. right yeah. How is it for you going through a second time? Um, I like to hear um, everybody's perspective on things and to mm -hmm. see what they caught as opposed to what I caught from the lesson um, from each chapter, which mm -hmm. is interesting. Yeah. Because I pick a couple of the similar things as some people do when they've mentioned it, but then there are things that um, you guys bring up and it's like, oh, okay. And then it's another underline in the book. <laughs> right. More underlined. Soon you're going to have the whole yeah. book underlined. Yeah. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. And then flagged. <laughs> They're all flagged. And flagged. I know all the flags. All the, here's mine. My book yeah. has lots and lots of flags. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, so it, right. it's nice to go over it again because, um, yeah, you, I can read through it again and still pick yeah. up more from it. Yeah. What I've been doing, because the first time I was asked to read this book, I was like, oh, this is torture. <laughs> like, I had a hard time the first time. And so I downloaded the Audible version. Oh. So I listened to it the first time, and that just kind of got into my head a little easier. And now when I read it, what I like to do is I play the audio version, but I put him on super speed. So normally he talks only if he kind of talks like this. And now when I play him, he sounds like this. His method, at once simple and difficult, was complicated. had gathered his disciples around him in the sylvan solitudes. The holy Bhagavad Gita was open before them. And while I'm listening to that, I'm looking, I'm reading along, because like oh, you okay. can totally speed read when you can kind of hear it. So it's it's definitely been a different experience for me doing it this way. I've never done it this way, but once again, fourth or fifth time through, new things popping up. And then with you guys saying things that I never even thought about before, like Yuko, when you were like is he mm -hmm. showing off? Is it ego-based when he's trying to get those tickets back and like prove himself? I had never even considered that. So yeah, so it's really helpful to, I agree, to go through and just kind of hear all your perspectives and everything. So thank you for all of your participation and your thoughts on this. And I am totally enjoying going through this again with you guys. So thank you for being here on your Saturday and um, I'm grateful to all of you. You too. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next week already. So happy reading and studying, and I will see you all soon. All righty. Thank, Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.